As I said a moment ago, we are entering into now the beginning of the Bread of Life, what's often referred to as the Bread of Life discourse. So Jesus is now going to begin teaching about the miracle of the loaves and the fish. The incredible miracle that thousands upon thousands of people not only witnessed, but they were actually a part of. And now Jesus is going to start teaching about what it actually meant. What was the point of this miracle? Why did Jesus do it? So from here all the way through the end of the chapter, that's going to be what we're dealing with. It's that theme of the bread of Jesus being the bread of life. So he's going to examine this from a few different levels. At times we're dealing with a belief, our focus is belief. At different times, it's um, on disbelief, on how some people come to Christ and they appear to be believers. And then for some reason or another, one day comes where they decide they don't believe anymore. And why is that? Why does that happen? And so we're going to deal with those types of themes throughout chapter 6 as we move forward. This morning, our focus is just going to be on verses 22 through 29. So I'd like to begin by just reading it together, and then we'll pray and we'll dive right in. This is the word of the living God. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, uh, just having sung your praises, we pray that you received it, now needing to hear from you through your word. Lord, I pray that you would help me to speak clearly. I pray that you would use my efforts this morning. They are powerless without your spirit. I pray that you would bless the, the hearing and the receiving of your word, that we would be receptive to what this passage teaches us. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. We just have three very simple headings today. First, Jesus knows what is in the heart, which is not surprising to us because we learned that at the end of chapter 2, didn't we? That Jesus knows what is in man. We've talked about that at length. But before we dive, I get too far ahead of myself here, let's deal with the context. I want to remind ourselves of where we are. Chapter 6 began, of course, with the 
uh, miracle of uh, feeding the multitude, thousands upon thousands, we don't know exactly how many, but at least 5,000 men, the multitude ate the miracle food, then they wanted to make Jesus king because of this incredible miracle that they were not only witnesses of, but a part of, that happened in chapter 14, or verse 14. Then verse 15, Jesus didn't want to be any part of that shallow belief, you remember? So he, what did he do? He hid himself from them. He went away. But then something perhaps even more amazing happens. Jesus sends his disciples off to go to the other side of the sea. He stays behind to pray to the, the Father. Then in the middle of the night, as they are in the middle of the sea and in the middle of a storm, Jesus walks out onto the water to his disciples. He hid himself from those who wanted to make him their political ruler, their miracle-working king. But he reveals himself in the most dramatic fashion to his disciples who were simply obeying what the Lord, the very simple command that the Lord had given them, go to the other side. But now we arrive at the precipice of another one of Jesus' extended discourses. As I said, it's known as the Bread of Life Discourse. He's about to teach what the true meaning of the first miracle was. John records that on the next day, the crowd that ate the Wonder Bread, guess what? They're looking for Jesus. Can you imagine? Perhaps it was mid-morning and they thought it would be nice to have brunch. And they thought to themselves, you know who we should call? is our good friend Jesus and see if he has some more bread. Let's go find him. But the problem is that they can't find him, can they? They remember that there was only one boat there on the shore. That his disciples had come in and they saw his disciples leave, but they don't recall Jesus getting in the boat, but they can't find Jesus. So they're like, what's going on? Where is he? What happened here? So they get into some boats that had arrived from Tiberias, and they head over to Capernaum, where Jesus was from, on the other side of the sea. And then John states that they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. I, th I think that that is an important little phrase, that they were seeking Jesus. And we learn in verse 59 that Jesus was there in Capernaum teaching in the synagogue, so that's where they find him. He's in Capernaum, he's in the synagogue, he's teaching. So this encounter is taking place in that setting. And so they walk up to him, this massive crowd. We're told it's the crowd that ate the bread. So who knows how many of them. Maybe it's all of them that were there the previous day. Maybe it's still a large portion. We don't know, but it was at least a large crowd that ate the bread. They find Jesus and they ask him, Rabbi, when did you come here? You almost wonder if they're asking, how did you get here? We saw just the one boat and you didn't get in it. How did you get here? When did it happen, too? We know that there was a storm last night. How did this happen? Perhaps they're thinking something miraculous took place, and we already know that they're sign seekers, so maybe they want to hear about it. Either way, you've got to love Jesus' answers to people because he's not interested in their question. He's not interested in answering them when he arrived. Instead, what he's going to do is diagnose the real reason why they came over there. Look at what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, 
not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. This is not exactly a warm greeting. This is a shocking response from the very lovable, laying with lambs, high cheekbone, Farrah Fawcett-haired Jesus that is found today, isn't it? These people are seeking Jesus. That's what John writes. They went to the other side seeking Jesus. And Jesus even says, you're seeking me. This is an important detail here. But you're seeking me for the wrong reasons. It's not because you saw the signs. It's because you ate some food and you're hungry. Any mere man would have seen this giant crowd that's going out of their way to go and find him, go and see him, and maybe puff his chest up a little bit and say, oh, these people are all here for me. Wow. But not Jesus. Jesus, once again, is not moved by the size of a crowd. He isn't excited that so many people chased him down. That so many people are gathered here on the Sabbath, likely, maybe, in the synagogue. Well, not the Sabbath, because they would have been working, but they're still there in the synagogue hearing teaching. He's not excited that a lot of people are in church on a Sunday, if you get the drift. That doesn't excite him. That's not moving his heart. He sees past all of the outward and external right to the heart of this giant crowd. Isn't this amazing? Because we, we see him read the heart of Nicodemus in chapter 3. And he reads the heart of the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. And perhaps one can wrap their mind around a little bit easier reading one person's heart in a one-on-one interaction. I mean, that's still more than you and I could ever possibly imagine to do. But here, Jesus is reading the heart of every single person in this crowd. This giant crowd. And he's saying, I know exactly why you all are here this morning. You're hungry. You want food. Again, we don't know how many people they were, but we do know that they were the people who ate the food. They liked what they tasted. It's still it's very safe to assume this is a, a very large number of people. Jesus looks at this large crowd and reads their hearts as, they, as though they all had signs above their heads saying, feed us again, please. More specifically, he reads their hearts to see exactly what they are seeking and he knows it's not truly him. Jesus knows what is in our hearts. We, we can fool everyone else. You can imagine the buzz there that morning. Perhaps even the disciples getting excited. Wow, Jesus, it's happening. After all, what did the disciples do when Jesus called them? How many interactions did we see of those disciples going and getting their friends and their family? Come and see Jesus. We found the Lamb of God. And now people are coming. This is amazing. This is Rabbi, look at this crowd gathered around you. They're not here for me. They're here for bread. Jesus knows what is in the heart. They've gone out of their way to go find him. But Jesus knows they're not seeking him. They're seeking food. They want his benefits. It's not so much about Jesus. 
They could have been Mark. It could have been Matthew or Andrew or Philip. They don't care. Whoever can do the thing that gives us bread, that's what they're looking for. But how do I know that they don't want Jesus and also bread? Maybe they want both. Well, there's two things I'd like to say to that. Let's recall that when we read about the fish and the loaves, we pulled in details from the other Gospels. Luke's account of the miracle tells us that Jesus spent the day teaching that same large crowd about the kingdom of God. Jesus was teaching them. It wasn't a day just about bread. It wasn't a day just about miracles. Jesus spent the day teaching them. Can you imagine that? You gathered together to hear the Son of God, the God incarnate, teach you about the kingdom? What an incredible privilege. Yet what most impacted them from their time with Jesus was not what He said or what He taught them, but it's what He gave them. It's that they ate food. Jesus doesn't say here, in his interaction, as he begins to interact with them, you are seeking me because you want to hear more about the kingdom of God. This is good. You want to learn more, my child, my children. You want to understand the inner workings of the kingdom. No, he's saying you're seeking me because you ate food. But second, Jesus says you're following me not because you saw the signs. Now that's a very interesting statement. Because if you look back up at verse 2, John records that a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs. Then in verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, that's when they wanted to make him king. But now Jesus is saying, you're following me not because you saw the signs. Well, what's going on here? Which one is it? Well, as often happens, it's both. They did see the signs. They saw the miracle. They were a part of the miracle. But do you remember what the purpose of the signs that John records in his gospel is? We've talked about it many times. He records these signs so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, these signs are meant to signify. These signs are a giant arrow pointing to something, but these people are standing in front of the sign and saying, look at that arrow. That's amazing. Could you imagine being on a road trip and there's your exit and it says, go this way, here's your sign, take this exit, and you say, wow, that is just a great sign. Look at that sign. We should come back tomorrow and see this sign. That would be absolutely insane, wouldn't it? But it's even far more absurd to see the Son of God performing these signs that are clear pointers to His deity and say instead, wow, look at that miracle. Look at that thing He did. Wasn't that awesome? Let's go see if He'll do it again. So when Jesus turned water into wine, the point of the sign was not so that the people could enjoy some delicious wine. Do we think that that was what was most near and dear to Jesus' heart? Is, oh, I just wish y'all had some more wine, you know? Of course not. 
We know at the end of that little interaction there uh, in Cana that the disciples saw His glory. The point of the sign was not to enjoy the wine, but to manifest His glory. When Jesus heals the official's son, the point of the sign is not to make the son feel better. That's not the point. The point is to manifest His glory. When Jesus comes to this invalid of 38 years, the point of Him doing this is not so that this man can walk again. The point is to manifest His glory. And when Jesus feeds these people at the beginning of chapter 6, the point is not so that everybody's tummy is full. The point is to manifest His glory. These shallow believers that are seeking after Jesus are focused on the glory of the sign and the benefits thereof, not on the glory of the Son. They did not see what the sign pointed to. They did not see what the sign signifies. It would be like stepping outside during the middle of a clear summer day and being amazed by the rays of the sun instead of the sun itself. The sun rays are nothing without the sun. If the sun were to disappear, the rays would disappear. The rays point to the brilliance of the sun. In the same way, the signs that Jesus performed, they point back to Him as His glory, as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But these false believers are more interested in bread. Who cares about glory? I'm hungry. Feed me. And perhaps now we have some greater clarity as to why Jesus hid himself from this large crowd in verse 15 when they wanted to make him king. It's because he knows that they didn't want him. They wanted to be fed great, miraculous meals on demand. It's the same today, my friends. Jesus continues to be unimpressed by large crowds because he reads the heart. He doesn't need anyone to bear witness to him about man. He knows exactly what is in man. But it's the same even with a small crowd. When you come to church, he sees your heart. He knows what you are seeking. When you come to him in prayer, he sees your heart. He knows what you are seeking. So what are you seeking this morning? Are you truly seeking Jesus? Or are you after more bread? You know, the great irony and even tragedy of all of this is that we can pursue the benefits of Christ, eat our fill of the loaves, so to speak, and still be left completely unsatisfied in our heart. That's exactly what happened to these people. They ate of Christ's benefits. And they were still hungry. It wasn't enough. We will convince ourselves that if we could just get that thing that we are praying for, then I will be truly satisfied. If Jesus would just bless me with healing so that I don't have to deal with these physical ailments any longer, then that's when I could truly be happy and truly be satisfied. If Jesus would just bless me with a spouse so that I don't have to be lonely anymore. 
That's when I could be happy and satisfied. If Jesus would just bless me with fill in the blank. But none of these things are going to satisfy the longing of your soul. Not one of them will. Pursuing these lesser desires is like chasing a mirage on a hot summer's day. The faster you run after it, the more thirsty you become and the further away the mirage is. Only Christ can satisfy the longing of the soul. And that brings us to our second heading today. That Jesus alone can satisfy the heart. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. After diagnosing the hearts of the people in the crowd, Jesus now gives His prescription on how to find satisfaction. Not temporary satisfaction of the belly, but lasting, eternal satisfaction of the soul. There are a few questions that arise out of this statement that Jesus makes, and that's how we're going to deal with this verse. So the first question is, what does He mean by do not work for the food that perishes? Is He saying that we should not work a job to provide food for ourselves and our family? Second, what kind of food endures to eternal life? And third, what does it mean that God the Father has set His seal on the Son of Man? So the first question, what does He mean by do not work for the food that perishes? Is the intention here to convey everyone tomorrow morning, turn in your resignation, stop working to provide food for your family, and go and just do really spiritual things with your life? Well, let's make this really easy. No. We know from other places in the Old Testament and the New Testament that we must work. God created work before the fall. Before sin entered the world, God put Adam to work in the garden. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Listen, not to enjoy all of its spoils, to work it and keep it. Work is a part of God's created order. That point might be more theologically derived, but we also have very clear specific commands of work. Listen to the wisdom of Solomon. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Wow. Ephesians 4.28 A command to thieves who are living the new life in Christ. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him just be super spiritual. Right? Let him just just go out and just fast on the side of a mountain all day. No, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 1 Timothy 5.8 But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, no, this text does not teach against work. Because Paul tells us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's abandoned the faith. He's worse than an unbeliever. 
On and on we could go, but I think you understand the point. Work is good and we are commanded to work and to provide. So, so what does he mean by work? Well, this is much more about what you are pursuing. The focus and goal of your work and of your life. The pursuit of your heart. The great focus of your life. And by speaking of food that perishes, he's referring to that which is not eternal. Everything that's not eternal perishes, yes? That's a very simple concept. So anything, my friends, that's not eternal, that perishes, that is a very broad category. That encompasses the majority of our life. How many of you know that you can make $100 billion in this lifetime, but you're not going to take a single cent into eternity? Not one. You could have enough money to buy half the world and all of it's gone the moment you die. Jesus is telling that crowd and all of us that we must not make the great pursuit of our lives to gain that which perishes. If you were to sit down and make a list of life goals, okay, what would they be? Let's be honest. Would, would the top five, are we talking work hard to make a good living for my family? to put my kids through college, to make enough to retire, to make sure my 401k is doing good? Is the great pursuit of your life to work and provide for your family's material needs? Is that the great focus of your heart and of your life? Then, my friend, you are working for food that perishes. That's what you're doing. If all of your life's work is being used on things that are temporary, now listen, it's not that work and providing for your family is unimportant. We just read from 1 Timothy 5, that is a very clear command. It matters. It's not that it has no meaning, but it's that it cannot be your ultimate goal. It cannot be the purpose of your life. That this is what I do, this is who I am, this is my identity. Is that I work hard to provide for my family. Friend, with all the love in my heart, that is such a low goal. That is small compared to what God is offering us. Moreover, and more to our context, you're working for food that perishes. After all, how many lost people provide very well for their families? But that work that they spend their life on does not amount to one thing eternal. Nothing. Another way to say it, to use Jesus' words, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Gain the whole world and lose your soul. When we stand before the Ancient of Days and the books are open, as we see in Daniel 7, are we going to be judged by the career we pursued that allowed us to provide well for our family? Is that going to be what's on the docket that day? Well, let's see. How did you provide? That's what's most important, after all. Is that going to be the ultimate deciding factor? Of course not. Of course it won't. Work matters. Providing matters. But these things are not eternal. 
And they do not make for a truly satisfying life. This is how C.T. Studd in his little poem, he said it. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I want to read you this excerpt from John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. It's in our little library, and I would encourage you to go get it. Quote, I will tell you what the tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let that last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. End quote. Do you see the point? The couple lives the American dream. But the reality is that they were working for food that perishes. It perishes. It's nothing. We're told that the ideal life is to work, Make a good living, provide for your family, and then retire with enough money to relax and see the world. But is that really what you want the singular focus and pursuit of your life to be? To spend your whole life, all of your best focus and energy, all of it on food that perishes. All of it on food that perishes. And here's the thing about food with a shelf life. Not only does it perish in that it does not give you eternal life, but also the temporary satisfaction that you get that it gives you perishes. It cannot satisfy you, and having more of it will not satisfy you. But we work for the food that perishes because deep, deep down we think it will last forever. We think it will satisfy the longing of our soul for eternal life. But only Christ can. Only Christ can. And that brings us to the second question. What kind of food then endures to eternal life? Look down at verse 32. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 35. I am the bread of life. Verse 48. I am the bread of life. Verses 50 through 51, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This food that endures to eternal life is ultimately Christ himself. What money can't buy. And here he is saying that he's going to give us that food. Brothers and sisters, don't miss that. Look at the verse. Let's read it again. Verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So you can spend your whole life with the the singular focus being on that which perishes, or you can be given that which is eternal. You can work, you can toil and labor to be satisfied with the things of the world, with financial security, with career advancement, with with notoriety, with popularity, with health, with relationships, and even with religion. And you will be left unsatisfied. Or you can work for that which Christ freely gives and be eternally satisfied. Not just for a moment, Think of it. What a beautiful picture this meal was that he gave them. They ate, they were full, and they were hungry the next day. That is the food that perishes. Everything in this world will satisfy you for a moment. And as soon as that moment is gone, you need more. You need more. One of the things that they teach you about drug addiction and alcohol addiction is that before long... How much you used to use is not enough. I need more to get the same level of high. I need more, and then I need more, and then I need more. And that's exactly how we are with the pursuit of things of the world, the pursuit of food that perishes. Before long, I need a little bit more, and I need a little bit more, and a little bit more. And I'm still empty, if not emptier than before. What are you pursuing this morning? Christ here says that he will give us eternal life, eternal food, food eternal. Because Christ here is telling us that he will give us himself. Christ came to this world to give his body for us in his substitutionary death on the cross that we may have life eternal. This wasn't an empty promise. This wasn't Jesus just saying stuff, selling us an empty bag of goods. This eternal life that we are given by Jesus is both qualitative and quantitative. Now what in the world does that mean? Quantitative, meaning that it is life that never ends. You will never truly die as a Christian. It goes on and on and on. Even when your physical body perishes, you still live. But it's also qualitative, meaning the quality of your life is eternal or abundant. When Jesus said, I have come to give them life and life abundantly, that wasn't, you can ball outrageous in the name of Jesus. What he means is that you will have a higher quality of life because you will have spiritual life. That's why someone who's dead broke Living in a shack can be full of joy in the Lord. But a person who has riches 
can be so miserable that they commit suicide. Why? They, they chase the food that perishes, and they're starving literally to death. This doesn't mean that we have all the material blessings of our wildest dreams, but it does mean that we experience a greater satisfaction in Christ because we will have Him. We can proclaim along with David as we read earlier, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Good to us and good for us. Christ is the greatest good for our souls. If there had been something greater than Christ to give us, He would have given us that. But Christ was the greatest good that could have possibly been given to humanity. And God, because He loved the world, what did He do? He didn't hold it back. He gave His Son the greatest good. Why would we pursue food that perishes? In Christ... We have all the provision that we need, every last one of us, to be eternally satisfied. So the third question, what does it mean that the Father has set His seal on the Son of Man? In ancient times, the king's ring had a seal on it that he could dip in wax and stamp on the document, thus authorizing what has been said in that document. So essentially what he's saying is that the Father has put His seal of approval on the Son He is saying that this document is from the king. What he is saying is from the king. You better listen. That's what's being referred to here, that the father has put his seal of approval on the son. He's authorizing him, if you will, to have the ability to grant this food that endures to eternal life. If you recall from chapter 5, Jesus spoke of how the father testified of the son's identity through the works that he had given the son to do. This was the Father giving His seal of approval, saying that this is who He says He is. He is who He says He is. And once again, we see that Jesus can grant life to those whom He chooses because the Father has granted the Son to do so because Jesus is the Son of God. This is why chapter 5 was so important. Verse 26 from chapter 5, As the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. So, why is that important? Because Jesus here, as He is promising to give us the food that endures to eternal life, these are not empty promises. These are not empty promises, just like everything else. Because it would be so easy to look at the offer of Jesus and say, yeah, that's what everybody says. But everybody leaves me, and everybody leaves me empty, and everything that I try is not enough for me. But when Jesus says it, He has the authority of the Father, the seal of approval on everything that He says. He is able to do exactly as He promises. That's amazing. So then how do we work for this food that endures to eternal life? If you're asking that question, you're asking the same question the crowd asked. Look at verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The crowd's wondering, okay, if we shouldn't work for food that perishes, but there's a kind of work that we could be doing that's going to give us eternal life from God, I want to do that work instead. It's as though they still don't truly get it. Their work, 
The work that they do naturally as fallen humans. And listen, the work that you and I do naturally as human beings is not profitable work. And I'm talking about the pursuit of our life. The great desire of our life. The end goal of our life. Everything that we do is in pursuit of self-satisfaction. But it leaves us completely dissatisfied over and over again. We work for the food that perishes because we don't know any better. And even if we did know better, we still will work for the food that perishes because we are powerless to do the kind of work that results in food that endures to eternal life. We can't do it. Do you understand? You can't earn it. There's not enough that you can do on your own to satisfy your soul or to grant yourself eternal life. What Jesus has been doing here, this whole chapter, it's been in the background, but he has been showing us the inability of human effort to satisfy his own soul and ultimately his inability to earn eternal life or really to do anything of any value. Think back to when we went through the miracle of the loaves and the fish. Andrew and Philip, they demonstrated that human ability was not enough to satisfy the hunger of the multitude. But what was enough? The food that Christ provides. Out in the open waters of the Sea of Galilee, human effort was not enough to overcome the wind and the waves to get to the other side of the sea. I mean, what a simple task. But human effort was not enough. Instead, Christ walked over those same open waters out to them effortless, effortlessly. And when he gets to them, guess what? Instantly, they're at the shore. How do you explain that? But God. Human effort is not enough. Human pursuits, human desires, they're not enough to satisfy our soul or result in eternal life. Only Christ is enough and only Christ can both satisfy the longing of our souls, giving us food that endures to eternal life. They don't get it. They still ask, well, what do I need to do? Don't worry, Jesus, I got this. Just tell me what to do. It's just like Nicodemus all over again. Truly, truly, I say to you, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Nicodemus, okay, well, how do I do that? Should I crawl back into my mother's womb? I'm not sure how I'm going to do that. But if you'll tell me how, I'll do it. No, you can't. You can't do it. It's impossible. That's why Jesus came. Jesus answers them here. This is the work of God. Here's what you have to do. You want to know what you have to do? Believe. Believe in Him whom He has sent. That's it. Oh, come on, it's going to be something, something else. There's got to be more to it than that. There's got to be something else i got to do. In other words, there's nothing that you can do. It's not that it's that easy. It's that there's nothing for you to do. You can't do it. You and I are ruined Sinners, ruined. Not just a little damaged and not just a little broken. We just need a touch-up. We're ruined before Christ. There's nothing for you to do. The only hope you have is to believe in Him. Believe. There's nothing you can do, no work you can do to merit eternal life. You must simply believe in the One whom He has sent. When Jesus miraculously multiplied the bread, let me ask, did he tell the multitude, okay, 
All right, everybody, now that I multiplied this food, okay, everybody do what I just did so you can eat. Did he multiply the bread and then say, okay, now that there's all this food for everyone, now I need everyone to go to the city and find enough food for everybody. In other words, once Jesus made provision, did he then make the people he provided for go do something? No. What did they have to do? Eat. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's made provision. He's, he's done it. It's, it's, it's done. What do you mean? What, what do I have to do? There's got to be something I have to do. Believe. That's it. Believe in him. Believe that his sacrifice was enough. That he is who he says he is. The Father has given the Son of Man the authority to give out food that endures to eternal life. And here is the food. Here is all you have to do. Just believe. You don't need to work for it. You don't need to try to earn it because you can't. You don't need to try to replicate the satisfaction this food will give you on your own. You don't need to do anything. You need to believe. You need to believe in the Son of God. And this, my friends, is why the gospel is so scandalous and at times hard for us to wrap our minds around. How can it be? There's a Shane and the Shane song that says, I'm going to mess it up exactly, but he says something to the effect of, it's taken me some time to believe that when you said it's done, you meant it. That when you said it's done, that it is finished on the cross, that you meant it, that it actually is done. The gospel is simply believe upon Christ and you will be given everything. Do you want true satisfaction? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you want eternal life? Believe in the one who gives the food that endures to eternal life. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. That's the point. Think about it. These people standing before Jesus in the synagogue in Capernaum do not deserve Jesus to extend the offer of salvation to them right now, does he? Do they? No, they don't. They're chasing Jesus for more bread. They're there for all the wrong reasons. And Jesus still gives them an opportunity to believe, to get what they're really needing in their soul. You can't deserve it. Not a, but nobody does. So I would like to ask you all this morning, where are you this morning? Maybe the Spirit of God is revealing to you that you do not know Christ and you have only pursued Him for what He can give to you. I would urge you to respond to that work in your heart by turning from those vain pursuits and believing upon the Son of God. He came to this earth born of a virgin. He lived a blameless life, died a substitutionary death, went to the grave, was resurrected on the third day, and now reigns on high. And if you will call upon Him and believe in Him, you'll be saved and truly satisfied forever. But perhaps you have trusted in Christ. And this passage is revealing that the focus of your life has been on, not on things eternal, but on things of this world. That you have been working for the food that perishes. 
I would urge you to pray as the psalmist did, to restore to me the joy of my salvation. That he would remind you of how delightful he is. That he would remind you that he's better than anything in this world that you are pursuing. That he would give you a greater taste for food eternal than for food that perishes.